Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at advances in remote viewing, and I'm delighted to be with Lynn Buchanan, who has made the journey here to Albuquerque. Lynn is the author of The Seventh Sense, a book about remote viewing, as well as a book of scientific fiction called Gravity Can Be Your Friend. He lives in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Welcome, Lynn. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to be here and talk to you. It's a pleasure for me, too, and a big pleasure for our audience as as well. Every time uh, we have you on the channel, I get a very strong audience response. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> for good reason. You've been engaged in remote viewing practically from from the beginning of the government project. Well, no, they, it had been in existence 10 years before I got there. You got there in the mid-80s then? 84. About eight years after me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a newcomer. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a youngster, yeah. <laughs> well, I, of course, I've studied remote viewing from you, and uh, you you have been teaching remote viewing. Yes. Uh, I'm a dilettante. You're a professional. That's well, the difference. Uh, uh, being a teacher by trade before that, mm -hmm. um, and also computer specialist before that, when Joe McMonagall left, yeah. I inherited the unit database. And uh, when people started coming in after me, they were teaching it, you know, uh, Ingo had lost his contract. And so instead of Ingo teaching, the other guys in the unit were teaching. And they were having trouble with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they said, well, you try it this time. And it worked. And the the new coming people, incoming people had no problem with it. And so I became the unit trainer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, you, to my understanding, you were in close contact with Ingo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ingo's a good friend. Ingo was a good friend, yeah. So, starting with your involvement in the unit at Fort Meade and up until his death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you've had the opportunity, therefore, to observe the evolution of the field of remote viewing over decades. The field of remote viewing with Ingo was constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talk to the different people in the unit, you know, who came from the unit, and each one of them will tell you a little bit different story. Yeah. That's because Ingo never fully finished the development of CRV. Mm -hmm. And so he'd teach one person. By the time he got to the next person, he had made changes. Mm -hmm. uh, by the time he got to me, uh, uh, he was teaching six stages of remote viewing to the unit. He had developed up through 18 stages. He said he'd never teach anybody. And uh, so when uh, 
I saw him the last time, I was talking about stage five, and he said, oh, I got rid of that. We don't have that anymore. And he had taught everybody in the unit stage five, so uh, uh, an intricate stage. But he was still developing controlled remote viewing. And you, I gather, have been developing it further since his death. Oh, I have found I'm a database person. I'm a database freak. Mm -hmm. And I have found that Ingo was a genius, really was. And I have found that almost anything psychic functioning-wise that does not follow the Ingo Swan method works at chance, pretty much at chance. But you get a method that follows the Ingus One technology that he developed, it's going to work. And amazingly so, yeah. A lot of the stuff we're doing now is not what Ingo originally taught, but it's based on everything he did. Mm -hmm. And it's working. It's great. <laughs> Well, that's the important thing that it is. Yeah, that it's it really, important. it's the results that count. Yeah. And I imagine that, at least in part, one of the reasons that he would teach it a little differently for each person is that there are individual differences in uh, people. That's one reason, but he was also constantly experimenting, mm -hmm. constantly keeping his own data, uh, keeping his own documentation and records and all that and trying things a thousand times, and if it worked 750 times, that wasn't good enough, and, you know, uh, still needed improvement. Uh, he was always trying for 100%, and uh, he's human like the rest of us, so, you know, never reached it. But, uh, yeah, there, especially near the end, you should see some of Ingo's work. Just phenomenal stuff. Uh, I'm glad that the which college is in Georgia? West Georgia. West Georgia. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm glad that they're taking all of his stuff. Uh, his archives. Yes. His archives. Uh, Rice University is taking the ar building and archives of the work that was done, not Ingo, but uh, Ed May's archives. Ed May's. Uh, Russell Targ's, Hal mm -hmm. um, mine, mm -hmm. uh, Paul's, Joe's, stuff like this. Yeah. And uh, they're building, actually, I think, a bigger archive than they're building in West Georgia. And, and the interesting thing is that there are archivists at these different universities dealing with paranormal information, and they're communicating right. with each other. That's right. Yeah. Uh -huh. It is becoming... Thanks to, I think, thanks to Ingo Swan, who made this into a science. And, you know, Russell and Hal, uh, due to their work and, you know, with, you know, the people they worked with, uh, this is becoming respectable. And I know that many police departments, psychic is still a four-letter word, you know. Oh, this came from a psychic. It's called CCT, crumple, crumple, toss. <laughs> and, uh, but you say it came from a controlled remote viewer. Oh, really? Let me read that. And, uh, and 
it has gained the respect. Uh, a lot of the stuff you see on the internet tears down that respect. But uh, most of us who are doing the controlled remote viewing, working very quietly, non-disclosure agreements with corporations and, and units and police departments and all that, and we don't talk about the work, uh, you know, give details, but uh, it's gaining a reputation among researchers, police departments, uh, the medical establishment, um, space research. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, space research is absolutely uh, interested in this because we have viewers who have database proven track records in their accuracy. Mm-hmm. Not just, you know, somebody who says, oh yeah, I once did something and it turned out right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know we've talked in the past about how careful you are about keeping a database of your current students and anyone else who's gone through the CRV protocol. I think it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. I really do. Uh, it it takes it out of the woo-woo realm and and it makes it a real thing mm-hmm. with real applications. Now, I should bring this up, though, because on the other hand, mm-hmm. uh, we did an interview. I didn't do it, the interview myself. It was brought to me by Deborah Katz, currently yeah. uh, the mm-hmm. president uh, of the International yeah. Remote Viewing Association. An interview she did, we released on this channel with Angela Ford, who was Part of the uh, remote viewing program work. She's a natural psychic. Yes. She's pretty good. Yeah. She and Ed May took her to Russia with yeah. with him. He considered her one of the top people. That I would were. say she's one of the top natural psychics. Yeah. yeah. She was never a remote viewer, a uh, controlled remote. Viewer. No. That, and that's my point. She, yeah. in fact, she told me that that she was in the unit, but yeah. she would do channeling, and yeah, and, right. and the other people in the unit were not happy uh, with the fact that she wasn't following their protocol. Well, it wasn't so much that as the fact that the military requires everything to be uniform, mm-hmm. and the channeling is. Not uniform. There are no protocols for the reporting. Uh, the work she did was quite often extremely good. But you couldn't put it into the format that the Army would take. And so, uh, you know, the information just didn't fit categorically into paragraph one, paragraph two, paragraph three. And so... It was it was always a problem. I'm told it was instrumental in apprehending drug smugglers. Oh yeah, absolutely. She's good. It was useful. It was useful, mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't formatted. Okay. And so that was the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's got talent. She's good. She's really good. Yeah. Then the the value of the protocol, as opposed to working with people who have a natural gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you go into that a little more deeply? Yeah, the protocol, <clears throat> basically, everybody has their own special talent and their special abilities. And we've never met anybody who doesn't have intuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the controlled remote viewing that Ingus Swan developed 
will develop your intuition to the highest level that you have. And so many people come for the remote viewing training, and all of a sudden they're doing work that's equal to a natural psychic. And they say, oh, you made me psychic. No, we didn't. We just taught you how to have, how to use what you already have. Mm -hmm. That's all we do. We don't make anybody psychic. You're already psychic. And, uh, and so when we find somebody, especially somebody who has a high natural talent, has never used it and doesn't know it, and they develop into a superstar, yeah. uh, they're convinced we made them psychic. We didn't. <laughs> we just taught them a method for using what they have. Well, it's fascinating that people can have enormous psychic talent and not even realize it. I had an interviewer ask me one time, he was asking me all the different things that happened, and he said, why do you think these things happen to you? And I said, these things happen to everybody. I wasn't trained by my mother to ignore them, and I was always inquisitive, and when something like that happened to me, I paid attention, and I didn't deny it. And... I think these things happen to everybody. All these natural, you know, you talk to anybody. Oh, yeah, one time, you know, what happened to me, and it gets you over in the corner. You know what happened to me one time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Every parapsychologist will attest, and oh, yeah. I know there are studies, surveys, that suggest that 70% of the population report having had a paranormal yeah. experience of one kind or another, yeah. and I suspect the other 30% uh, won't report it. <laughs> won't report it. Right. They, for whatever reason, they, they push yeah. it out of their... Uh, mind. Well, it's against the religion, or they were taught, oh, that's your imagination, yeah. and, you know, hey, that's not business like you'll never get anywhere in life, you know, and, and also people are going to make fun of you and ridicule you and all that. And, uh, yeah, as a society, we, uh, we stomp it out. I mean, actively stomp it out. Come in here, uh, person I was riding with, he said, uh, you know, back in ancient times, uh, we were talking about it, and they didn't have radio, TV, newspapers, or anything, and yet they were able to tell where the enemy was, where the, where the herd was going to be, that we could get food and all that, and uh, they used their intuition and developed it. With the coming advent of other means of communication, we don't use it anymore. And so it's becoming, uh, you know, just uh, uh, vestigial. An atrophied skill. An atrophied skill. Which is, uh, Ingo Swan, if I recall, sort of complained about the idea that uh, human, the human population has a lot more potential than it has ever actualized. Fantastic potential, yeah. Everybody complains about the situation we're in these days, but complaining 
he is not actually doing something about it. (laughs) 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 Complaining louder is still not doing something about it, you know. Well, you are. You're training people. That's doing something about it. That's doing something. And uh, somebody was asking me in, in a webinar I had recently, well, if it all hits the fan, uh, will there be any survivors? And I said, there's one way to be sure there's going to be survivors. He said, how? And I said, be one. <laughs> That's all it takes. Just be one. <laughs> there comes a point in the training that I do. Uh, uh, Lori's husband has a term for it that can't be repeated on on camera. But there comes a point where all of a sudden one of the student, well, every one of the students goes through this point where all of a sudden they realize I can do this. And, you know, it's it's not woo-woo. It's not fake. Uh, I'm not... I'm not here being gypped by by some gypsy and all this. And uh, uh, they realize, I can do this. And immediately they realize, wait a minute, all that stuff I've been taught. And all of a sudden, there's this paradigm change. And that moment is one of the moments I live for in teaching. Because you can see it happen, and it's great. I love it. And when does that happen typically? Uh, Generally, after about 10 times when they've really nailed a target that was in a sealed envelope, absolutely no way that they could have known it. I don't know what's in it. Nobody in the room knows what's in the sealed envelope because it's just totally picked them random out of out of hundreds of targets. And uh, and they nail it, they describe it, they draw it. And then we open the envelope and they look at it and about the 10th time that happens, it's, oh, what Lori's husband calls it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's, that, it's that moment. Yeah. And you can see it. I mean... Everything, everything from their childhood suddenly vanishes, and it's it's different. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, and it, oh yeah, mm-hmm. and they look at themselves differently, and they all of a sudden realize, hey, I've got this potential. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, mm-hmm. I know I'm going to have a good viewer. That's from that point on, we're going to be bringing home some missing kids, mm-hmm. you know. Missing soldiers, yeah. Now, in my own experience as a graduate student, back in the mid-1970s, I, I did a an eight-week training program. Yeah. And what I found was that from day one, they could do it beautifully. Russell, yeah. Russell Tarr used to, you know, do little weekend workshops with yeah. people. And they're... Uh, instantly doing uh, highly accurate remote viewing, but then it dawns on them, wait, what have I done? What have I done? I can't do this. And they they get rid of it. Yeah. But about the 10th time they do it, Uh all of a sudden they can't deny it anymore. And all of a sudden it starts to have meaning. 
and that oh moment changes, you know. And uh, it's a beautiful moment. I love it seeing a, seeing the student go through that change when all of a sudden they realize they are more than they ever thought they were. It's it's. I love it. I I live for that. <laughs> well, one of my thoughts long ago, and and one I still hold to, is that as as you open up to metaphysical reality, mm-hmm. you come to realize that among the other talents that are natural for people is something along the lines of healing. And, yes. And I know you've also been engaged. You told me a wonderful story earlier about uh, some work you did in that area. Yeah. It would be well worth sharing with our viewers. We have a lot of work that we do in that area. Uh, and um, in the Inga Swan technique, you never heal anybody. If it's, you know, they've got a missing arm, I don't care. You can hear all these miracle stories. You're not going to replace that arm. Come on. Yeah. And, uh, but when you get down to it, a large percentage of our illness today, we can blame it on the pharmacies. We can blame it on the smog and, you know, and all that. A lot of it is self-generated. And, uh, so with the Inga Swan technique, you access their subconscious mind. And you find out whether or not it's self-generated. And if it is, you spend the time. And you may do two or three hundred sessions with that person. It's it's a lot of work. But you help them work out the problem at the subconscious level. And all of a sudden, they start healing themselves. And, you know, with a, with a psychic, I'm going to heal this person that person needs that illness, they get sick again. If you help a person through this and they heal themselves, it becomes permanent. Not only that, but you have taught them how to heal themselves. And so it's not that one problem that gets healed. It starts a chain reaction and changes their life. It's fantastic. And, and the method that you use, you describe to me as a scenario. That's one of the methods we use is um, a scenario. Um, do you want me to go through that? I think our viewers would be fascinated. Okay. Uh, a man named Savely Sava out in California uh, set up this organization that um, where he rigorously tested psychic healers, picked only the cream of the crop, the ones who could actually prove that they could do things. And he started uh, matching them up with professional doctors who would work with them and keep data and do further research on them. Well, he hooked me up with um, Dr. Mann of Cornell University in New York City. This is back in the 1980s. Isn't this it? is uh, 95, 96. 95? It was after I got out of service. Okay. He was working hypertension. Yeah. He had uh, patients in all the time who had systolic levels way above 200, 250, 260, and all this. You know, at uh, crazy. Crazy levels. And um, so whenever he got a patient 
they had this machine that every 10 seconds, I think it was, it kept a graph of their record. And he had a long history of their records on this machine. Blood pressure. Blood pressure. He would call me and say, I've got a patient on the machine. I would flip a coin, and if it turned up heads, I would work a session on them. Mm -hmm. I never told him. If it turned up tails, I wouldn't do anything. At the end of this six-month period, we, you know, put the data together with his charts, when I worked, when I didn't work, and all that. And um, when I didn't work, their, their record stayed their normal record. When I did work, uh, it would uh, it would often, quite often, amount in up to fifty point drop in their blood pressure. Uh, it was never enough to cure them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a curative thing, but in a case where they were about to have a stroke, it would get them out of the critical area, and that was his um, summary at the end was. This isn't curative, but in an emergency, it can be used. Mm-hmm. And so we got that um, as a uh, as a scientific study yeah. on the use of CRV to help in medical applications. What would you call this CRV? It was actually what's called remote influencing. Mm-hmm. But now this scenario situation... Um, is a situation where you access them at the subconscious level and you develop a story and you get them involved, you get their subconscious involved in the story. And it can't be your own imagination. You do your part and then you wait for their response. And so I set myself up on a road and this woman, uh, I pictured her driving toward me, just hell-bent for leather, down this road, and she stopped, and I waited to see what happened. And she leaned out the window and cussed and yelled and screamed at me. And so at that point, how did I react? So I reacted by saying, look out this way. There's deer out there. And I don't care, you know, and all this. And finally, I just kept on. Finally, her response was to get out of the car, come look, and there were deer out there. And she got kind of fascinated with it. And I said, okay, well, let's go down and get near them. So we went near them. That scared them. And so I said, well, let's go hide behind a tree. There's a forest over here. And once we got into the forest, we heard water splashing. There was a waterfall back there and a little lake-type thing. And uh, by the end of that session, it took, once it got into that and got access to her subconscious, it took no more than 10 minutes. And uh, and at one point in that, she jumped into that lake and just started swimming and having a good time. Mm-hmm. And uh, on that one thing, uh, her blood pressure had dropped 50 points in about five minutes, yeah. And I engaged her in a subconscious scenario 
Now, we have a lot of other tools for the medical applications, too. But that one's a very specific one. And, uh, and I mean, you're, you're ad-libbing the entire time. Because mm-hmm. you do something, you wait for their subconscious response, and then you try to figure out, what do I do next? To engage their subconscious, to engage them at the subconscious level, mm-hmm. and with uh, with the Ingo training, you can do that. But it is definitely a uh, oh, it's total ad lib, ad lib all the way through. But it heals people; it gets them to heal themselves. And uh, this is one of the medical applications that we have. But we never try to heal a person; mm-hmm. we try to get them to heal themselves. There was a parapsychologist, Jerry Salfin, who did a report years ago. I've heard that name. Yeah. In Northern California at the time is, is where he was based, although I think originally from New York. And his theory was that this is how healing works. It's a telepathic suggestion to the other person who then heals themselves yeah. as opposed to a psychokinesis oh, yeah. uh, model where I'm going to heal. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, slap them on the forehead. Heal. <laughs> well, I suppose uh, it's possible that both techniques can work from time to time. Yeah. But in in any case, you also reported to me that afterwards the w- patient uh, gets debriefed about their experience. Well, yes, we did on the, in that case. Uh, first of all, they had to uh, give permission to be involved in a test. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did everything legally. Uh, uh, Savely was absolutely uh, squeaky clean on his research and and the legality of it and everything else. Uh, I don't know whatever happened to his work, but at the ranch I'm building, this is another thing I want to do is not only train people in the medical applications of CRV, but take the cream of the crop Start hooking them up with the medical professionals and continue Savely's work by documenting and um, rigorous, strict documentation showing that, yes, an intuitive person can be an extremely valuable tool for a doctor. Mm-hmm. Of course, with the end goal, train the doctors to be intuitive. <laughs> <laughs> train the nurses. Uh, a doctor gets trained in one method. That's his hammer, and everyone who walks in the door is a nail. You know, a heart doctor. I don't care. You have a bum foot. Oh, it's your heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, the nurses. Uh, you teach this to a, a nurse, who will then guide the doctor. And uh, that doctor's practice becomes successful. And, uh, yeah, the uses for this is phenomenal. So what I hear you saying in short is that Ingo Swan developed not just a single technique, but a, but a repertoire. He did. Mm-hmm. And he developed a, a base technique that uh, a lot of people out on the Internet say, oh, if you don't keep it strictly Ingo, you know, uh, then it's, it's you're doing wrong and all this. Mm-hmm. He developed a base 
to build on. Yeah. And uh, I liken it to, you know, uh, uh, you learn something in medical school, okay? Every single day, there are new developments in medicine. That doesn't negate the human body and the study of the human body. You know, there's a basic that you learn in medical school. If all you learn as a doctor is what you learned in medical school, you're not going to be a good doctor. You've got to keep up with the developments. You've got to keep up with things. And so my practice has been to go out to corporations, to the police departments, to different agencies and research groups and all that, find out what they need. And uh, it hasn't always been easy to civilianize the military use of remote viewing. Uh, when we first brought it into the civilian arena, we are working for police departments. Mm -hmm. That's no different from the military. Right. And uh, but then we had, you know, we've done space research, uh, we've done medical applications, we've done research and development for different corporations. Uh, a couple of corporations have come and said, we would like a remote viewing team of our own. Mm -hmm. Now that's where I have the non-disclosure agreements. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, really strict, and uh, and. Uh, they have developed, you know, have trained the uh, remote viewing units like we had in the military for a corporation that is now using that remote viewing unit in secret within their own company uh, to, to devise company plans and procedures. Well, I can understand the need for secrecy because there are People out there who who would, if they knew what such a corporation w was doing, would make every effort to publicly ridicule them. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That this is, you know, superstitious nonsense. We're still in that age. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we still live in a culture that is infused with a, a deep sense of denial. That's right. Yeah. And this is one of the things that the work that we do for corporations and agencies and all that, uh, even with police departments, they don't want people to know that they use remote viewers. They're eager to get controlled remote viewers, but that four-letter word, psychic, is still there. And so we sign non-disclosure agreements. I also, when it comes to the police, I require non-disclosure agreements from them mm -hmm. because the information we provide, we don't know if they have dirty cops. We don't know if the names of the viewers are going to come up in a trial. Mm -hmm. Criminals learn who gave the information. That puts their viewers in danger. Yeah. And so I require non-disclosure agreements of the police departments to protect my viewers. I think it's unfortunate, but it's realistic to say we live in an era in which secrecy around remote viewing is actually protects everybody. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I find it unfortunate, too, 
But, you know, if you're going to be realistic and database this and, you know, be scientific about it, hey, that's part of it. That's the realism. So we do it. Yeah. And you're particularly interested in working with people who are professional, who have a, a professional need that right. that they're not uh, able to resolve using conventional methods, yeah. and uh, and who understand the value of working with a, a team of people who are following a rigorous protocol. That's right. Yeah, uh, we were approached by a space research company uh, who have. This company has plans for astronauts, uh, not to go to Mars, but beyond Mars, to another star system. They already have it planned. And um, <clears throat> so they said, we know there are planets around this star. It's We think we can get people there within one lifetime. It's, uh, it's one of the nearest stars. And... Uh, and they said uh, that when you send a uh, an ambassador to a foreign country, you give them an area book that tells the religion, the habits, and all, and customs, and all this do's and don'ts, so that you don't go there and do something stupid and start a war. And they said, "Can you find out if there is a sentient life system there?" And I said, yeah, we can take proven remote viewers who have a, above 80% accuracy. And with, eight, with a known 80% accuracy, we can, we can predict. You know. And uh, we found that on the second planet out from that star, there was a, a sentient race of beings, uh, not bright, uh, on our scale, it would be probably IQ of 90. Not not smart. These are not spacefaring aliens and all that. Uh, but they have their own society. And so uh, they said, okay, can you do an area book? Can you do a demographic? So we did. And uh, we gave it back to them. And, of course, there's no feedback. There won't be for... Who knows? Until they get there and come back. Until they get there and come back. Which will be a long time. And so uh, I wasn't satisfied with that. Yeah. And so I took my some of my best students and I said, okay, sealed envelopes, okay? I'm going to get all the data I can on a culture on Earth here. And I want you to do the demographic on it. And then I said, okay, I'm going to get another culture here and that I know that part of that culture moved into this culture, okay? And uh, one of the first ones we took was when the Mormons broke apart and moved up into Calgary, the Cal you know, British Columbia, uh, up there among, you know, farmers and, and all that. Okay. And... Uh, and so we had absolute records of those. So in, in other words, you're looking at the interaction between Mormons and the native Canadians. That's where, right. Where they migrated. And, and totally blind. Yeah. And the uh, viewers, we said, okay, 
give me the demographics of these people and the demographics of these people. And we made charts. Yeah. And we said, okay, let's lay this chart over this chart. Mm -hmm. Those areas that matched, we found out, was exactly where they cooperated with each other. Those areas that didn't match was where crime happened, where bigotry happened, and all of this. And uh, it dawned on me, like we've got people coming across the southern border and they're just randomly sending them to New York City and, and all this other. We can do the demographic on the groups of people yeah. to keep crime down and, and all this. You're, Turks coming into England. You're using the term demographic, and and I know what you mean, and you know what you mean, but I don't think our viewers quite okay. know what you mean. Yeah. The demographic of a society, or even a single person, yeah. is the collective total of their religion, their customs, their upbringing, their traditions, their political beliefs, their uh, desires in life, you know, every aspect of their life. Mm -hmm. And you do that and you can actually make a chart. We call it a polar chart. And the shape that comes up on that chart shows the absolute personality of that person or that culture. In, in other words, you're using remote viewing to do a very detailed sociological analysis that if you had to use conventional means yeah. would be very costly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Time-consuming. You'd yeah. have to send researchers out, oh, surveys, yeah. and, and you'd be collecting information. So the remote viewing process, in other words, can shortcut all of that right. uh, with a, a high degree of accuracy. Yeah. One of my uh, students uh, recently did a project. A uh, uh, museum wanted an artifact from some of the North African tribes who are very belligerent to outsiders. Well, how did they send one of their people in to get the artifact and talk them out of borrowing the artifact for the museum without getting them killed? And so we did a demographic of the people at the museum. We did a demographic of the people of the tribe and came up with an answer. Here's how you do it to get that artifact barred for the museum without getting the guy killed and, and all this. And, uh, and what we realized was, uh, well, for example, uh, this, this one company said, uh, we know we've got aliens on the earth. And sooner than later, probably presently, they're filtering into our society. Once they start doing it openly, can you give us their demographic, our demographic, and see where the conflict is going to be? Uh, and, you know, once you find the conflicts and the corporations, advertisers can advertise the cooperation area and advertise for humans and aliens and sell products. Realtors can say, no, wait a minute, we don't want to put those in New York City. We don't want to put them in 
Podunk, South Carolina, you know, we want to put them in this area, and realtors can can sell houses. Police will be prepared for what areas of discord there's going to be between when two societies clash and can train their cops to to be prepared to settle those disputes. Um, churches, when when two religious when one religious group moves into another religious community, there's going to be cooperation and conflict. And uh, we can predict exactly where those areas of conflict are going to be so that they can prepare and work it out and prepare. And uh, this kind of work we have found is going to be great for corporations who want to advertise, uh, realtors, police departments, religions, uh, societies in general, city planners, all of this. I mean, it has real applications. And this is one of the things, the the ranch that I've, I've formed, this is one of the things I want to build as a training center for these and bring in cops, bring in researchers, bring in people and teach them how to do this so that when aliens come here or when we go there. We don't start a war. You're using the term aliens, and I'm a little puzzled. Uh, them, 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 <laughs> them, them, yeah. We, are, we, are we talking about human aliens from other uh, countries migrating into the United well, States? Know, for like I say, uh, you know, it's it's historical uh, disaster when the people have started moving into Great Britain. Uh, for the first time in history, there are more non-citizens in Great Britain than there are citizens, uh, you know, population-wise. And uh, they're going through a horrible time. Uh, the, the social uproar in Great Britain, because of this influx, well, it's very complex because the aliens are are coming from multiple locations. That's right, and uh, you know, and the police have basically are just uh, overwhelmed. Yeah. Well, if we knew about that ahead of time, we could tell the police here's what to prepare for, mm -hmm. and uh, with each particular grouping, with each particular group, and. Uh, and so, yeah, there are real-world applications. This is no longer the answer is, you know, this is, hey, I have a problem. Can you use this to solve it? And the answer is we're finding out, yeah, we can help. Now, back to the question of aliens. You sort oh, yeah. of hinted that uh, there are non-human aliens or yeah. the alien, extraterrestrial. I think that's already been established pretty well. I think everybody knows that by now. Well, I don't think so. Oh, really? No. I, 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 no. I don't know of any official uh, certification of, of that finding. I, I often make this mistake at the level I was in in the government. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've been in circles where it was yeah. well accepted. The common Joe on the street 
does not have that level of information. But and I don't. I, I honestly, I've never met uh, an alien. I can. I'll say this: I have met several people who tell me they have met aliens. Oh yeah, ex ETs. I've met a lot of people who say they are aliens, and <laughs> some of them I think, oh, you may be right. <laughs> it's not unreasonable at this day and age, knowing what we know, yeah. that, the, that the information that's been revealed publicly yeah. does lead one to speculate that there could be uh, extraterrestrials among us, some human and maybe the some not. Some information not. that's been leaked is less than the top 1%. Yeah. How, what do you mean less than the top 1%? Of information that they have. Mm -hmm. They're leaking it slowly. Yeah. They're getting us accustomed to it. You know. Well, can you say any more about that? I'd rather not. Okay. Because <laughs> I don't know if I'd be stepping on my, you know, shooting myself in the foot or what. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, they're here. And uh, um, this thing that Stephen Greer did with the press club. Yeah. He started off by saying, you know, the aliens could have wiped us out a long time ago. We don't have to worry about the aliens. It's the technology that we're getting from the aliens that we're now using. We have to worry about the humans who are using that technology. <laughs> and so uh, uh, that's, that's his big fear. And, uh, uh, yeah, they, they're here. And when so you what? spoke earlier about a, a company that's planning uh, interstellar uh, travel to another planet, obviously that would require technology that we don't yet have, or at least hasn't yet been demonstrated that we do have. And we just spent a lot of money on a big rocket, uh, the biggest ever, just to go to the moon, and it's old technology. I did not talk to them about any of the technology. I just got the tasking from them and gave them the answer. Mm -hmm. But uh, they were talking like, oh, yeah. We're sending people to the star. Oh, by the way, what time is it? You know? <laughs> and uh, and yeah, they were talking with with absolute certainty. So I accepted that, you know. And um, I didn't ask any questions. I have learned. Uh, I learned many times in many of the black ops projects. I would go in and I would say, "Look, don't tell me anything. I don't want to know." <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for it, and uh, and they will honor that. Yeah, that's happened many times. Yeah, don't tell me anything I don't want to know. Of course, a lot of people would like to know, would like to have certainty around some of these things. I believe in secrets. I really do. Yeah. Well, where would you say the work in remote viewing is? Is going. If I know you're uh, establishing a training center on a ranch near yeah. White Sands. Yeah. yeah, it's way out in the middle of the desert. It's called the Remote View Ranch. In fact, the, we have a website, remote, remoteviewranch.com. Mm -hmm. It's got a GoFundMe. Uh, I basically wiped out my account buying it. It's 120 acres, no pollution, no sound. It's in a no fly zone. The nearest small little oasis town is five miles away. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's uh, not only because of the remote viewing, 
but it's remote, and you get out there, and man, what a view. You see the snow-capped mountains, and you see the, you know, it's it's fantastic place, and uh, absolutely quiet. The quiet out there is so solid that sometimes it's like you're hearing it. You're hearing the silence. It's just so, so you just get overwhelmed by the silence. And, uh, uh, yeah, oh, I love the place. Mm-hmm. I wiped out my account, so we've got to go fund me. And uh, there are already buildings on the property. Uh, terrible road going to it, but we're getting, I'm going to get that fixed. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I'm developing it, and I want to use it to help people. By the time I get it developed, I'm going to be in my 90s. So I'm not developing it for me. Yeah. I'm developing it for what it can become. And uh, and I hope it gets supported. Cross my fingers. So your goal is to be able to train a uh, a new generation of remote viewers oh, who, yeah. who will be working with professionals. Yes, and I'm already doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The medical applications uh, were not to the stage yet where I feel comfortable matching them up with professional doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are a lot of professional doctors now who are very open to the idea. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I would like to see constant above 80 to 85 percent accuracy on everything. Yeah. I I set a standard that's very high. 85 percent is okay. is a very good standard. That's better than doctors. In the field of prognostication, yeah. uh, very few people attain 89 percent or 80 percent. Now, I know in the past you've sort of hinted to me in the area of financial forecasting. Oh, yeah. This, this is a useful skill. Is it possible to apply the remote viewing abilities of your existing students to raise the money that way? Uh, it is. Uh, a lot of people go into associative remote viewing for betting and, you know, for the uh, – and uh, with associative remote viewing, you can get filthy rich. Mm-hmm. But from the day you start, you figure if you practice diligently – Five years from now, you may start getting rich, okay? But ARV is a very difficult process to gain high accuracy in. Everybody can do it to some level to where they win the pick three lottery once or twice, you know. But getting it to even the 50% level, uh, it's going to take you years, and teachers of ARV don't usually tell you that. They get you in their school, take your money, and, you know. And uh, It would be a big mistake to let lead anybody on to think that uh, becoming a remote viewer is a pathway to riches. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's a pathway to helping humanity, helping yourself, helping your family. Uh, and... Uh, and doing good for the world and for yourself, your own career, your own, you know, everything else. But um, 
yeah, people come to me, oh, I'm deeply in debt, teach me remote viewing so I can get out of debt and get rich. And I just tell them, you know, hey, you know, get a second job. Stop stop spending your money on hundreds of dollars on a cell phone and just use a phone that has a cord and you can pick it up and talk, you know. And uh, stop smoking cigarettes at $12 a pack, you know. You want to get uh, out of debt, start managing your money. And don't remote, don't learn remote viewing. It's, you're not going to get rich. You're not going to do it. But on the other hand, I think in a previous interview, you explained to me that you used remote viewing to help purchase a very nice house that you live yeah. in. Oh, you can definitely use it, but you got to be good. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you're not going to take a three-day course in remote viewing and be good. It takes takes work, and uh, it takes work and practice, practice, practice. One of my one of my students, I was joking with him. One of my students one time said, "I want to be the best remote viewer in the world. What do I do?" I said, "Well, there's three steps. One, practice, 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 practice." He said, "I do that. What's step two? I said, "Step two." Practice, 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 practice. He said, okay, what's step three? I said, wait for me to die off. <laughs> <laughs> then maybe you'll have a chance. <laughs> and I was joking, of course. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's uh, to do the remote viewing correctly, the controlled remote viewing or any remote viewing correctly with a high degree of accuracy it's work. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to learn it in three days or a five-day course. You'll learn to do things that you can surprise yourself with, and you can surprise your family and and all that. But to get to where you can change society, to where you can bring home missing children, takes dedication. Mm -hmm. it really does. Well, it's no different in that regard than if you wanted to be a, a concert pianist. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in many ways, the Ingeswan technique is a martial art. It's all physical. And uh, so you train like a martial artist. You don't get a black belt in three days. <laughs> you know. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I try to tell people, people come to me and they say, I want to help bring home missing kids. I say, well, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. You're going to get to the point where you're definitely remote viewing the child, their location, what's happening to them and all that. And you're going to be sympathetic with it and you're going to be going through it with them while they get raped, murdered, dismembered, do you really want to do this for your life? And they think, oh, maybe not. And I say, you can do it. I can train you to do it so that it won't affect you and you can bring home missing kids. But you're not going to learn that in three days. You're not going to learn it in three years. I think it takes a certain calling. It does, yeah. 
And, you know, it's a good ideal. I want to bring on missing kids. But uh, not everybody is cut out for uh, police work. No, no. Oh, police work. Yeah. <laughs> police work can get really gory. Yeah. Uh, this is why, you know, federal agents have a high degree of high percentage of uh, suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, even trained uh, federal agents come to the point where they can't take it anymore. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, people have ideals that are lofty, that are honorable and respectable. But they don't always understand what's behind the reality of it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what we teach is we teach a person who wants to do that and three or four years later, they get their first real case for a police department and they can do it without having nightmares for a month, without going, you know, and, and all this. We teach them uh, a large portion of the CRV course, controlled remote viewing course, is not just collecting intelligence and collecting information from a target. It's how to protect yourself from the target. Mm -hmm. And we teach protection, self-protection, as well as going out and getting the information. Yeah. You know, what do you mean protect yourself from the target? From the emotional aspects ah, of it. Like in, in a police case. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, uh, a body is in the uh, uh, dead animal portion of the landfill, buried under all these dead animals and all that. And you send a, describe the location of the missing person. And they experience that, yeah. You you have to train for that. You have to prepare them, and uh, that's what we do. And there are a lot of teachers out there who don't prepare them, and uh, there are a lot of potentially fantastic remote viewers who have an experience like that, and you never see them again. Well, I guess for a lot of people who start out as remote viewing trainers, yeah. Uh, like my good friend Russell Targ loves to do weekend oh, workshops, yeah. or he He's did. Yeah. And, and, and and yes, he was very good. Russell had a great skill. Yeah. People in his presence, he would say to them, you can do it. And that's right. People understood when Russell says you can do it, you do it. You do it, yeah. <laughs> well, I've done that. You know, I was at a university one time and they wanted a demo. And I said, okay, I've... I've put a thing into this paper bag. Yeah. I want all of you to take up pencil and paper. Mm -hmm. And every time you get a noun, discard it over to the side. Every time you get a descriptive word, you write it down. Mm -hmm. And uh, a good, I'd say, 70% of the class described what was in the bag. They described it perfectly. But all those nouns over to the side was, oh, I know what it is. They were all wrong. Yeah. But the descriptions, uh -huh. they described what was You're in the bag. talking about one of the most profound concepts in the field of remote viewing. Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Don't try to designate what it is. Ingo 
Inga would say, describe, do not identify. And you came up with a noun. Damn it. No, set it to the side. <laughs> so, so there's this paradox, which is yeah. that people can uh, easily pick it up in a weekend oh, yeah. uh, and understand that it's possible. It's possible uh, for anybody. Yeah. But then to maybe like uh, you can train a, a, a person in a weekend to play some simple uh, tunes yeah. on a piano. Chopsticks, yeah. Uh -huh. But to become a professional at a high level to be able to do it consistently yeah. and to get paid for it and yeah. to get positive reviews for your work over and over and over again is going to take the kind of training that it would take to train a professional in any other comparable discipline. That's right. And you know, you talk about the pianist, concert pianist, and you say, well, what do they do in their, when they're not on stage? They practice. They're at that level where they're world-class pianists. What do they do every day? They still practice. Yes, I recall Horowitz, a great pianist oh, yeah. uh, who continued to perform, I think, until he was about 80, would say, if I don't practice six hours a day, I can tell the difference. You know, it does take dedication to get to that level. Now, for most people, they can use the remote viewing. They don't have to be at that level. When it comes to just making intuitive decisions, yeah, a six-day class, a three-day class, and some practice, yeah, you're good. And so it changes their life. It helps their life. But when you get to that level, uh, you need a dedicated person. And uh, so people come into it wanting to get rich. Hey, I can show you how to make money, but you're going to practice before you get rich. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also dawns on me that you need a social support system yes. for that kind of training. I mean, let's take music. People who show musical talent get encouragement from childhood all the, all the way along. They have fans. They have uh, a lot of uh, publicity. Yeah. Everybody loves a talented musician. Mm -hmm. It's not the same case with a talented remote viewer. That's you got right. people yeah. throwing tomatoes at you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in the um, intermediate class that I have, uh, it's online now mm -hmm. rather than in-house. And in-house, I would have them work together and we had people leave and they have stayed together as mm -hmm. groups. Mm -hmm. We've even had marriages come about from mm -hmm. from the class. Yeah. Uh, but now that it's online and we have like 30 to 50 people at every webinar, mm -hmm. uh, I've got them to where one person, I'll give them a task. Okay, you're the project director for this, for this task. Now, you pick the people who are going to view, who are going to monitor from the class, and I've got communities going mm -hmm. all around the world, you know, because in any one class, we have people from South Africa, uh, Australia, Russia, and all that. And uh, so I'm forming communities, and they're working together. 
uh, they're sharing their work and they're encouraging each other. And uh, yeah, that social structure is a very big part of helping you helping you keep it up. It's one of the reasons I keep putting out several videos every week yeah. is, is to provide that kind of support for people around the world because mm. there's so much discouragement. I know, yeah. Well, Lynn Buchanan, what a pleasure to be with you again. Oh, thank you. It's yeah, Listen, I really enjoy coming up and, and just talking to you. Not just the camera, but, yeah. you know, we sit and have lunch, and it's it's great. Well, you're welcome over and over again. I need, if I'm on again, I need one of your... Uh, pins? Pins. Oh, absolutely. Pins. I'm sorry I <laughs> could have given you one earlier, but okay. I'll make sure you go home with that. advertising for you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great to see you, Lynn. Good seeing you again, yeah. Thank you for the for the invitation. My pleasure. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. Right. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? 